I, I confess, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, and I told my father that I'd be interviewing you, and he demanded that I send him a link. So Awesome. <laughs> I am uh, just going to do that, and then we'll get right into the, into the questioning, and um, we'll give you the third degree. All right. Sounds good. Hey, Mark. How are hey, you? Hey, Ron. Good to see you. Hey, Seth Lincoln. It's great, great to see you. Uh, please call me Ron. I just read a story about you tackling... Um, Tackling a would-be robber oh. <laughs> uh, in Queens. Yeah, no, that was like that was like oh, that four was years ago for me. Yeah. <laughs> that was like my Cory Booker moment. Yeah, like five years ago. But um, yeah, thought, yeah, most people actually didn't write the follow-up story. You know, we actually tracked the person um, who you know who attacked the woman. And, you know, he had a mental illness and he had like an addiction problem and he, he got arrested like 14 times in one year. Oh my God. And, and it just kept going through the system. So we actually got intervened and had the mayor de Bodebazo to his credit, his office was good. And he sent his wife uh, who was doing the mental health stuff. And we actually were able to interject in the courts and try to get him out of the system and give him some wraparound service. Um, but no one, no one cares about that. Everyone cares about the tackle. Everyone, the ta yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it resonated with me because uh, it's it's become with to fund the police and fund um, you know people that are better equipped to deal with mental illness. It it seemed um, yeah um, yeah it, it, it was striking that you know you had the conversation four years ago and made a point to say make sure this guy's you know dealt with in a way that will help him and not just punish him. So let's get down to, to, uh, to business here. Thank you very much, Assemblyman, for joining us. Uh, it's a great privilege to have you here, uh, especially in the midst of everything that's going on in New York. And I know that it's a crazy time for everybody, um, probably crazier for you, uh, being on the inside and, and having to work in this mess. Uh, so what I, the first question I want to ask you is about this new surge of, of COVID cases um, in New York. Uh, Governor Cuomo continues to blame the second wave on individuals not social distancing and wearing masks. He's closed indoor dining in New York City, but he wants to keep businesses and schools open. Um, the science isn't exactly on his side. Uh, we do know that transmission does happen in schools, even if it's not the primary uh, means for transmission. We know that COVID patients are twice as likely to be office workers than remote workers, according to the CDC. And the New York Times just did a piece about how most New Yorkers are, in fact, wearing masks. So do you think that this second wave uh, in New York is more a failure of personal responsibility? Or do you think that there's uh, a failure of policy going on with Cuomo pushing to reopen the state? I absolutely think it's a failure of policy and it's a failure of public sector investment. And, you know, to your surprise, like I kind of feel bad for the guy. I feel kind of I, I, I feel bad for Governor Andrew Cuomo because he's like he's a walking paradox, right? Like I think he, there's this there's a side to him. He wakes up, he really wants to get stuff done, and and he just wants to do it. Like 
have people do A, B, and C and like fix this problem already. But guess what? Like you've defunded all the hospitals, uh, Medicaid, and, the, and, and, and really stripped away the public resource necessary to actually execute on your will. And I think that's the paradox of Andrew Cuomo, that he's got this, you know, let's do it, like a doer attitude persona, yet he doesn't have the goods uh, because he himself oversaw a government, austerity government for years leading up to this moment. So let's, let's talk a little bit about his strategy um, to deal with this crisis then. So as you know, the, um, his new plan uh, bases zone designations, zones being the area maps of the state, zone designations and closures on hospital capacity. And the old metric for determining what was a red zone, which is the most severe, and what was an orange zone, and what was a yellow zone, the old metric was, were, was cases per 100,000 people and positivity rate. Um, and in addition to this new metric, he's also ex ordered the expansion of hospital capacity by 25%. Uh, under the old metric, most of the state would probably be shut down right now. Um, as the New York Times pointed out after we did at the Daily Poster, uh, the new strategy staves off closures. And it's really an effort to stave off uh, closure. But even so, hospitals are quickly reaching capacity. Um, when my article went live last week, last Friday, 19% of New York City hospital beds were available. New data from the Department of uh, Health and Human Services shows that the Mount, at the Mount Sinai hospital system, 92% of ICU beds are occupied, uh, were occupied last week. 91% at New York Presbyterian Hospital system uh, were also filled. So let me ask you, do you think that New York State should be open right now? And if not, what can New York do to sustain a, a shutdown um, given our $15 billion, I think, budget hole? I think, first and foremost, when he structured the, his advisory um, group and his economic uh, team, you shouldn't have put an executive from Blackstone to oversee our economic recovery. That was his first mistake. Um, second mistake is he didn't talk to the people who were most impacted. He, to this day, he has not waited in the line of a food pension line, uh, talked to a nursing home resident, or visited a nurse and had spent time with them one-on-one -on -one because they actually hold all the solutions. If you spend time on the ground, you know what people want. A small business owner, there's nothing more that a small business owner want than be paid to stay home, make sure, make knowing that you know the rent's taken care of, and they could stay home and take care of their families and kids, but they can't. They know they don't. They completely lost faith and trust uh, in, in in the government. Like how can and after the first wave, fine. Like we don't know what we're doing. We're gonna stay home. We're gonna shut it down. But they have not received a dime of support, especially if you're a smaller size, if you're a mom and pop, if you're an immigrant, they haven't received a dime from anywhere. And you're you're telling them you got to shut down again. Um, you, I think, I think the right thing we have plenty of time. Um, the, the right thing that we should have done was to fund people and pay people to stay home and take care of each other. That. And that would have resolved everything. And and the, the irony is we do have billions of dollars of reserves. We do have a natural catastrophe fund that we can liquidate now. Um, we could leverage certain things to borrow um, a low interest 
to to make sure that people are staying home and they're paid to do so. But this governor, you know, is listening to a team of people that is prioritizing markets and economies over people's lives. I mean, that's the common theme throughout this entire nine months of COVID. So let me follow. Let me just follow that up um, and 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 ask. Even if even if uh, Cuomo doesn't want to close down the entire state, uh, even if he doesn't want to do that, he still has options that are not being discussed right now. One of those would be mandating remote work where possible. That I haven't heard anybody really talk about that. And a lot of the people I talked to for my story, I think that's a good idea, including one doctor who works in an ICU. I'm saying, you know, we we got this shit under control back in back in the spring and now it it's blowing up again and nobody seems to care. Um and call, said it was. It felt pretty insulting. So, I mean, do you think that that would be a you know, at least a temporary solution? And yeah. why is no one talking about it? Um, yeah, I don't know. Same thing with public schools, like remote learning, and all. I mean, I just why risk it? Like, if we can have the means to keep people at home, again, like pay people to stay home. That it, it's a simple solution. But but I think um, they're just they're just afraid. They're afraid of of the corporate interests, the businesses, of the of the long-term impact of private equity firms and investors that are hedging their bets on the outcome of this pandemic. Like without an economy, there's no uh, no extraction of money and wealth that these people are these people are betting on. And I think there's a larger um, goal here, which is to prioritize steady economic activity over the safety of of people and their lives. And I think uh, these decisions that were made, some of the worst decisions, <clears throat> like giving out a blanket, and this is, you cover this extensively, a blanket corporate immunity uh, to nursing home executives and hospitals at the peak of the pandemic should be a crime against humanity. I mean, that's as simple as that. Now they're using the same language at the federal level uh, to give a, to give a blanket corporate immunity for corporations. Just think about a society that has come to a point in the middle of a pandemic, they're more worried about saving the bottom line of corporations and people's lives. Well, that's something we've talked about pretty extensively on this on this podcast, and especially in the last uh, in our last few episodes. it's It's incredibly frustrating because it seems like the kind of, assistance that people need isn't even being talked about. It's not even on the table. Yeah, um, it seems like what what is the obvious and the right thing is is pretty clear and we just can't muster the the will to do it. I mean, in a similar vein, uh, sadly, I think that we're going to see in, an explosion of homelessness, right? If Congress doesn't act um, and if we don't start getting money in people's pockets. Now, there are some New York state senators that are pushing for a blanket eviction moratorium, but Cuomo um, prefers extending the uh, protections of the, the, the tenant safe Harbor act, uh, which will allow property owners to seek these monetary judgments instead of outright evicting people. Um, they've, I think he's extended it now through January for commercial uh, eviction cases. Um, but, uh, I mean, what what do you think of his priorities there, and what do you think the right thing is to do? Yeah, his priority is very clear. He 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 wants the markets, whether it be the housing market, the hospital market, or the regular business market, to be a priority over the safety of our people. Um, 
it, it doesn't matter what what sector you're looking at, including inmates that are stuck in prisons. Other, even moderate governors have gone out of their way to make sure that people are protected. But this governor has not exhibited any kind of empathy toward people who are most vulnerable and who have underlying conditions. And as and going back to your housing question, it, all the studies have shown that evictions lead to a, to a widespread of COVID. I mean, it's just like, it's ridiculous. But the fact that they, it's not, they're, they're stuck on, oh, what's going to happen to the real estate market? What if this person doesn't pay uh, the mortgage? Then there's no property tax. There's no this. It, again, people are dying and they're worried about market fundamentalism in, in this context. And that's at the core of the philosophical divide in this state. Um, and unless unless we're honest about that, uh, and and how we got here, and why we why and why is he so popular? Like why is he still, you know, polling at seventy percent? You know, it, it's just, it's mind boggling. And I, and I wake up always thinking about like how do we get to this point in society when people are okay with having an authoritative governor like Andrew Cuomo prioritizing corporations and markets over people's lives in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, it's it is so frustrating, and it it was so it was frustrating and kind of surreal to see during the height of this, and I guess the end of March, early April, where Cuomo would march out on TV. Um, this was about the time that the hospital ship was, you know, uh, flo- maneuvering its way into New York Harbor, and people who probably even honestly had barely heard the name Cuomo, except if they were driving over driving over a bridge, maybe weren't all of a sudden infatuated with him. And some of the best analysis I saw about this was you know he has he has a severe authoritarian streak in these and and people with that streak thrive during crises but now that now that we're in this position where you know it's it's still an emergency but it's not as acute an emergency um and we need to actually take steps to do the right thing and um help people uh it's uh, it seems like he just flubs it at every at every opportunity and, and, and sort of to that point, I mean, he, Assemblyman Kim, you have been a longtime proponent of raising taxes on the wealthy, and Cuomo has been a longtime uh, opponent of, of that. Uh, and he, I believe yesterday you were discussing a, a plan to raise taxes on, on the wealthiest to pay for services for just regular people in New York. Um, and today, Cuomo addressed that plan uh, and said that if if we have to if we're going to raise taxes on the wealthy, it has to be paired with cuts, and we have to address all of the budget right now. If you, if you want to raise taxes on the wealthy, we're going to have to do all of the budget now, and and that's before a Biden administration comes in and maybe gets more help to the states. I mean, does that make sense to you? It is uh, completely illogical uh, what the governor, I mean, it makes sense to the billionaire class. I mean, if I were living in the Hamptons and the governor is putting out the message, I would be so happy that I have a governor that's willing to show for me every single minute uh, to make sure that my property, my wealth is, no one can touch it, you know? And that's, I mean, that's what, that's what this is really is about. I mean, and, and, and to be fair, it's not just him. It was the previous governors, the previous Republicans and Democrats for 30 years have normalized this type of practice. 
where we have a regressive tax system. We are completely afraid to touch real wealth. And when and and whenever we whenever the federal government or state they come in and give out corporate giveaways or reduce taxes on the wealth, no one blinks an eye. Everyone's like, oh, that makes sense because they're saying they're going to create jobs. They're going to create all this revenue. Jobs and revenue are the biggest sham words in neoliberal corporate agenda for the last 40 years. Because none of it, all the data have shown that all their reduction in wealth, it went straight to the pockets of the ultra rich. It hasn't created any of the jobs and revenue that we desperately needed. Uh, we know what did when we actually had a progressive tax system. That's when our middle class grew the most and we had real upper and social mobility. Um, and now, you know, New York is still the wealthiest place, you know, in the country, in the world, the 10th richest state compared to other nations, been richer than Finland, richer, uh, wealthier than, than Russia, than South Korea, you know, my hometown, my homeland. But we also have the worst uh, wealth divide, economic divide, and the worst uh, uh, social and upper mobility. So that was really the, my driving purpose, why I want to tax the rich, that we need to deconcentrate. We need to break the concentration of wealth to give working families, immigrants, next generation a shot um, at, at what, you know, at the so-called dream, the American dream, and, and, to, and the promise that ambition and hard work will finally beat birthright in this state and this country again. And New York has to lead that, not, not Washington, New York, because we hold a key to change that narrative. You know, I have to say uh, that is a very welcome message to, uh, for me to hear because I, I grew up um, on the east end of Long Island and I am very, you know, Cuomo says, oh, if we, if we raise taxes on, on the wealthy, they'll just flee the state. And um, I, having grown up in, in uh, the Hamptons, that is not happening. They're never going to surrender their, their little enclaves. Um, and so it is, it is really uh, rather galling to have a governor come out and say, you know, and, and just put forward an obviously wrong headed um, argument about why we can't do something that is so basic. Um, and just to give, just to put out a statistic, Mark and I did a report on uh, homelessness back in, in, I think it was what, 2018, 20, 2018. Yeah. And uh, at the time there were about 87,000 empty apartments uh, in, in New York city. And that dwarfs the, the the homeless population in the city. Like we they call them ghost apartments. That was that was when I became familiar with that yep. term. And that has that number has only increased since the pandemic because they all fled. They all fled the city. Yeah. Um, and so there is just there's all this glamour and and uh, money and and these luxury apartments and. Uh, they're unoccupied and yes. people are sleeping on the streets. Almost a hundred thousand empty apartments and 6,000 people are sleeping on the street every night. I mean, it's. Yeah. Not only that during this pandemic, they facilitated rezonings that allow to us to build more luxury apartments that are going to be empty and more hotels. This happened just down the block from where I live, 3 million square feet in flushing rezoning. People fought it. Uh, for weeks, but the city council had virtual meetings and they 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 passed with with all the votes. So, 
Uh, they're doing it here. There's a building right next to in in, in uh, where I'm in Brooklyn. They've got we've got a building going up right now across the street. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, is it is, yeah, is it just is it just ta is it tax space um, and is and just the influence that you know these in this way that these people wealthy developers etc hold um, and the fact that interest rates have been at zero for almost twelve years now or is or is there a more noble sort of uh, uh, operating uh, system that that is guiding this these policy these policies well, for the rezoning and the developments for the rezoning and developments yeah, yeah. Is, it, is do they think this will actually make people's lives better is it or is it uh, is it just yeah I mean there was there was there was a real deal magazine article that featured my opposition because I wrote an op-ed about this um, about about wealth inequality in Asian American communities, and you walk in a district like mine, where people celebrate the condos, but we also have the worst poverty. In fact, the worst divide in all minority groups exists in Asian Americans. And the Real Deal editor wrote a big piece saying, Ron Kim has it wrong. It's not the developers that cause wealth inequality. It's just the you know, this is a byproduct of wealth inequality. But that that really brings to a, a deeper question that actually intersects with not only development, but also the Green New Deal and a green economy, which is if you are in the business of supplying the demand of the ultra rich that are causing unnecessary carbon footprints on this planet, you know, because there's no better example than empty luxury apartments than <laughs> carbon emissions, unnecessary carbon emissions that's destroying. In fact, there was an investigative report that came out in New York and other places that the majority of the carbon emissions are caused by the wealthiest uh, populations in our communities. So if do we then, as lawmakers, have a duty to cartel the supply and manage the decline toward a Green New Deal uh, in terms of the markets? Um, I, think, I think that is the core of the Green New Deal in a place like New York City, of how we can shift that conversation, that we're not here to facilitate the demands of the ultra-rich when they're destroying our communities, our people, and planet. Like we need, to, we need to come in and say, stop, this is not going to happen. We're going to deconcentrate, and we're going to shift policies toward land, community land trust, and other, other um, real, you know, sustainable models uh, toward living. Well, Mark and I just did a an article on the uh, the Shinnecock that that I think you shared, and one of the one of the things that ended up it didn't I, I don't think it ended up in the final article, but uh, one of the things that we talked about with with uh, tribal members was that these big luxury mansions in Southampton uh, are huge problems with in terms of like septic and and water pollution, environmental pollution, and, and that all this development is really driving um, our contributing to the climate crisis. And, and uh, it's really, it's really abysmal. So how do we, how do we stop this, this development? Because on, on the one hand, you, and I don't want to name the person who um, made this argument, but they are as somebody who is ostensibly on the left was saying like, Oh, well, it's, you can't, you can't. Uh, every time there's a you know affordable housing, you, you get to this, you get these NIMBY arguments like, oh, we can't build that because of X, Y, or Z, and like you really have to change, you have to change zoning, and you have to you have to sort of unleash development, and that's really how you become an ally. Um, uh, I don't, I don't think, I don't, 
Yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't buy that. So what do yeah. we do? Then? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't it, it's like, it's like uh, the fake renewal, like, oh, we need to marketize, um, you know, renewable energy and give uh, the markets to readjust. Like we don't have time to readjust. We need uh, public control. And that's the, that's the ultimate, I think, solution. We need to be brave enough to say we need public control of our economy. And I'm not, I'm not saying don't let, um, you know, small businesses and the private sector thrive, but there was a time when we were able to invest toward a direction of how we want to take our city and our country and, and, and move the supply and demand toward there. The supply and demand will not move toward our people or, or greener planet if the public sector do not interject ourselves and make it so. And, I, and, and obviously the private sector has a lot of money that in align with corporate media and, sub, and the pop culture to demonize and vilify politicians and public sectors that even talk about anything like this. Oh, they're a bunch of communists and socialists, uh, at, at best populists or, <laughs> you know, or, or career politicians. Um, but that, that, but that no longer resonates. I think the people, when you look at the policies of what the people want, they want Medicare for all. They want uh, public control policies because they recognize that the private extractive models are not serving them. Couldn't agree more. Um, uh, so perhaps just to bring it back to COVID quickly. So you endor endorsed um, Bernie in 2020, um, and he's been fighting for relief checks uh, in this in this next COVID deal. But uh, from what we're hearing, it seems like state and local aid is really going to be a, a casualty here. Um, so, and without that, states like New York, are, they're going to have to make some really, really difficult decisions. Um, and it just, it seems patently obvious by now, right, that the safest path to deal with COVID is to, is a national shutdown um, where the, the federal government keeps people whole and keeps these businesses afloat, small businesses afloat, and um, cancels and forget and forgives rents and mortgages so that people don't actively have to go out there and spread this thing. Um, but instead, it just seems like we just keep punting. The federal government has keep kept punting uh, until you know there's a vaccine, um, and just trying to manage you know business as close to usual as possible uh, without actually providing any meaningful aid to people. Um, so, is this frustrating to you? And 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 what things do you think are not on the table that really need to be on the table um, for us to? to handle this, have handled this better and handle it better going forward so that less people have to die ultimately because that's really what's at stake and it's so easy to forget that. Yeah, and uh, it's, yeah, obviously it's extremely frustrating and the reason why uh, I was the first New York public official for this time around to endorse Bernie because is not only his platform on social justice, but he was the one that clearly fought for economic rights, you know, as, as a fundamental, um, right for all people. And, you know, if, if, if he had leadership like that, we wouldn't be having uh, a, this type of a discussion. I think we would have already stepped in, uh, funded everyone to step, um, to stay home and um, been on a better road to recovery. Not only a better road to recovery, but just be transforming our economy toward a 100% green 
new economy. Uh, we would have already done seized this opportunity to do that, but right now we are at a, a K recovery where the rich are not just recovering, they're thriving and they're making more money um, off this crisis. And the poor and small businesses and the workers are literally going to die. I mean, they're going to, they're going to be homeless. And I've had people waiting in my food pantry line, a person who died of hunger two weeks ago, waiting on a food pantry line. So this isn't something that I'm, we're just, you know, making up. Like it, this shit is happening now. Like people are dying uh, of hunger uh, in the richest in, in the city. United States of America. Yeah. In, yeah. In, in the richest place in the richest country in the world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and and, and again, so again, at the beginning of this um, section, like, how do people become so desensitized to something like that? Like, how do we, how can we listen? How can we hear that story and be, have and and it become so desensitized where we are we can be dehumanizing our fellow neighbors and our human beings, and we can just walk away and go eat brunch or dinner or whatever, um, and because that's what's happening. Because if Otherwise, everyone will be out there protesting. Everyone, everyone will shut it down. Like this isn't, this is not going to happen. Like we will, we are going to take over City Hall, Albany, and DC. This is not the direction that we want this country to go. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's you know, uh, I think where we are right now. And and if Como, and I feel just like Andrew Como, man, like he just, you know, I root for him. Like I want him to, to be a hero. I want him to be a better version of FDR because FDR wasn't that inclusive in his new deal. But imagine that we have a, a better new deal uh, under this time. Like, and I'll be the first one to be endorsing him for whatever the hell he wants to run, you know? And I think, I think, but the fact that he's just not, he's so good at additioning to uh, manage inequality while making, while telling a good story for the people to stay on the treadmill, that you you are going to be New York tough, that this is about your individual grit and determination, and this is what we're made of. Um, that's just dangerous, in my opinion. No, it's 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 welfare state for the the wealthiest and uh, just Dar rugged Darwinist. <laughs> Capitalism um, for everybody so else. we do have a we do have a question here um, in our chat that I want to ask you. Um, would love to hear Assemblyman Kim's comment on the debt collective, student debt strike, and debt uh, debt cancellation in general. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, we launched a student debt cancellation uh, campaign two years ago in City Hall, um, and obviously. Following that, Bernie, uh, Liz Warren took a 90% approach and the advocates that have been working on this issue for 10 years took it to a national level overnight. So now even Joe Biden, even Chuck Schumer is tweeting out cancel student debt. So it's amazing in two years that we reached this point. Um, and, you know, and it, it says a lot about what, what it means to cancel debt because back then when we launched this campaign, there were so many trolls and people just attacking me. Like, I pay my debt. Like, how could you possibly, like, you, you, if you borrow something, you got to pay back. Uh, but we were able to, especially the advocates, to, to, walk people back from those opinions and get to a point where this is actually in New York, a very popular platform. 
uh, we saw, I, I recently saw a state poll where above 68% of New Yorkers want to cancel student debt. And then that is amazing. Um, so I think people understand, uh, it's amazing to me because people understand that debt driven uh, money is no longer, it no longer works, especially private debt. Um, and now, the, now we have a duty to also educate the difference between private money and public money. And that's a harder discussion um, because people um, don't understand that we do have the power of the purse in Washington, D.C. Because when we fund the police, when we fund the military, no one questions how that money is being produced. That's public money that's being produced by a keystroke. But when we want to fund the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, anything that involves the people, uh, it is the national debt, it is, there is a deficit, we can't do this, we can't do that. Because the people who have control of private money are, are, are at the very top. And as long as we don't print money for the bottom, their money becomes valuable. Their money, money gets leveraged into loans, into credit cards, into payday lending, into all sorts of leveraged money that comes down to our poor community in the form of credit. And credit is not real money. You know, we need money, real spendable cash to come back to come back to our communities. Yeah, it does. It does seem like the uh, the the model today, the business model, is is hook people into debt and just extract from them for as long as possible, uh, and which really is like a weight on, on, on that individual for the extent of time that they are in debt, which for most people is, I guess, most of their lives. Yeah. Every level, even the city of New York, people don't understand. We, we pay $3.1 billion, over $3 billion of interest to money that we borrow from Wall Street. Every single year during this pandemic, those that money can go to hospitals, schools, etc. But we're paying off interest, and that's the con of debt, uh, uh, interest-bearing loans and debt. That uh, it, 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 it's it's highly exploitative and it's highly extractive. It doesn't matter where it comes from. When you hear the word interest, when you hear the loans, it's not good. And and I mean the other side of it is. Um, it keeps workers imperiled, you know, and, and, you know, what's to be the most, what, what is the most decisive parts of the career? It's the, as far as the trajectory. Mark is about to tell you his favorite quote from the nineties. If you, if you, <laughs> if you well, I'm not going <laughs> to quote Larry Summers right now. Although wait, no, that was, that was not Larry Summers. That was um, Greenspan. Greenspan said, I, I owe, we owe uh, a lot of the, of uh, the success of the economy to um, basically making uh, workers uh, more precarious and desperate. Uh, but I mean, and part of that is is student loan debt. If you come out of law school um, with two hundred thousand dollars in debt, uh, and you want to improve the world, right? You're not going to take that nonprofit job or that environmental uh, law job you're going you're going to take the it's going to be a lot more tempting to take that corporate gig when you have two hundred thousand dollars to pay off and then it just brings more people uh yeah. into this yeah no i had a i had a you know a lunch and i mentioned this in an op-ed i wrote about student debt in the daily news a, a few years ago i had lunch one day with the pretty well-off executive private equity ceo 
uh, and he was like an intergenerational money. Like he inherited a lot of that money from his father. And we're talking about student debt. You know, I just trying to make an economic argument, you know, to this Harvard, you know, educated mm-hmm. and executive. And he um, turned around and said, you know, Ron, what do you think is the biggest motivator of people? And he said, it's fear. You know, it's and that's what debt does to yeah, people. Absolutely. That fear makes you want to work. Fear makes you want to go to work, wake up in the morning. The fear that you're gonna lose your family, the fear that that you're gonna lose your home, that's what drives people every day. And 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 that just blew my mind away. Like that's how uh intergenerational elites think of how our economy works. It's 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 enslavement in a, in a really real way. I mean, wage to slavery, but you're if you're carrying a $200,000 in debt, what are your options, you know? Um I mean, it's life obliterating in in really well, real it, ways it, if you this, can't pay I it think off. your point about so. fear also is is really is really important one, especially now when everybody is 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 stressed financially and and whatnot. I mean, there's uh, not only does it prevent people from making positive change, but it drives them to sort of um, to the to the opposite, to, to negative. Um, in New York City alone, we're seeing an uptick in violence right now, shootings um, and murders. This is the, no coincidence since the start of the the pandemic. I mean, that that is the trajectory. At least I think that we are on. If we don't, if we do not address the massive need that is out there. And unless we alleviate that insecurity and that fear, like we will be driving people into, um, into violent thought processes and, and action. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, it's not a coincidence that as we, as wealth inequality, the gap has increased in the city of New York, uh, our our police budget has also increased at the same rate. You know, in the last ten years, our NYPD's budget increased by fifty percent or sixty percent. It doesn't mean the population increased by fifty percent. <laughs> what it did, it's it's the it's, it's the economic uh, divide and the concentration of wealth. Um, how do you how do you how do you enforce that fear? You know, how do you how do you let, how do you make sure people understand the law exists to to sanction state-backed violence on the poor, right? And that's what and that's what the enforcement agencies do um, to our most vulnerable members, um, especially racial violence, because p- people who are in debt are mostly black and brown people who have to take out more money to go to college and who are more likely to default on their loans after college because the opportunities do not exist for them to pay back that debt. Yeah, it's, I mean, you see this in systems of apartheid and uh, segregation in the U.S. The more unequal a society, the more resources and energy it takes to keep it, the more inherently unstable it is. And so the more the more energy it takes to keep it stable and protect the interests of, in this case, the top. And then that's, that manifests itself in, in 50% Which then feeds budget. the inequality. It's a cycle. <laughs> to uh, maintain order. Yeah, it's a it's a brutal cycle. Um, let's talk about corruption in New York. New York is uh, one of, if not the most corrupt. St- I think there was an article recently. It's the most corrupt state in the country. Uh, Cuomo shut down a probe when it almost reached his office. Um, 
I think people who worked like on the other side of the door were, were pinged in this corruption probe. What do you make of it? And uh, what what can we do to to crack down on, on, on corruption in in government? Well, I think public finance um, at statewide level and leak and getting money out of uh, the deep layers of politics is the first step. Um, it's clear why we had um, a corporate immunity legislation uh, in the middle of a pandemic. It wasn't, no one, in, no, none of the families wanted that. The residents who are dying in nursing homes weren't requesting a corporate immunity for the nursing homes. It was all the, it was like the biggest donors. I mean, they, they kept the list of people and how and of what this industry's wanted when they're drafting this legislation. I actually saw a leaked memo, one pager of what the top industries wanted um, out of this bill. Uh, it was sickening. It was sickening. And so getting money out of politics is number one. Um, I think I think secondly, just getting just like how I'm 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 going to be pushing a inheritance tax. I also believe in the same uh, philosophical alignment that we shouldn't have career politicians. Like we shouldn't have people been in office, the same position for eight, 12, you know, or, or beyond like a certain time period. I think term limits um, is important. And it, it pushes people um, to focus on the job at hand and not be afraid and not to worry about legacies and figuring out how to just win re-elections. Um, so it's, I think that should be um, a critical step to root out uh, the corruption. Um, but, and I think the law is pretty clear, you know, I think it, people know what's corrupt and what's not corrupt, what's legal and what's not illegal and what's ethical and what's not unethical. Um, I think just like the, the police, there could be, a cultural um, element to it, you know, that's 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 driven by uh, mostly male-driven political and social currencies that that enforces people to act in a certain way, right? You have to be a team player. You have to be loyal to this. Like those type of, I think, language, gender languages that we use in politics does have a tremendous impact in building the foundation around corruption because it, because we fall in line. And, I, 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 and I'm reflecting on this because I've seen it. I, I, I was part of, that's how I got into politics. I played that game. I, play, I carried those petitions for the establishment um, and was told, it's not your turn yet. Well, you be a good team player, son. And then you do A, B, and C, and we'll look it after you. Like, you know, so I know how that game goes. Um, but that also uh, allows people like Como to be at the top, right? The authoritative figure, because they, people have to support that authoritarianism and there has to be a machine and, and a structure foundation. And then there are no checks. I like mean, him. just recently, uh, Lindsay Boylan, who we had on our, on our podcast, uh, accused Cuomo of sexual harassment for years. And this kind of, you know, this kind of behavior just exists when there are no checks and on people at the top and it, it goes unnoticed or unreported or, whatever. And it's, uh, it's, it's rather troubling. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, this, this culture yeah. of, of sort of patronage that you're describing, it doesn't just stop at the state. It doesn't just end at the state level. Like we see it at the national level too. I mean, 
uh, not to not to hit our favorite target, but everybody's America's mayor, America's mayor being appointed to the head of a federal agency with uh, no real experience to run it. I mean, that is a clearly a patronage decision. Buttigieg is an expert because he played that game, right? There didn't when somebody tweeted out like interesting point. Pete actually loves this game where you buy up like trains and whatnot. And like, what? What? It's embarrassing for everyone involved, but I would be really embarrassed if I were, (laughs) if I were in that position and like they had to justify my appointment by like, well, he does play a game that involves (laughs) trains. Like, well, you know, he plays Sim city. He's, he's clearly qualified to run a city. Um. Yeah. No. I mean, what you know? What like yeah. he, he worked in McKinsey, <laughs> so he must know how to how to private privatize every public transit system in the city of New York. And I'm sure he'll he'll in four years we're going to see him public public private partnerships. That's that's be... the key. That's the key. So <laughs> right, right. So definitely. Right. Um, you know, I definitely hear your point that that there that these cultures exist, and and it is you know publicly financed elections is is great. The outside spending is is what concerns me. Um, I think in uh, in terms of campaign finance, because the you know we can limit how much a politician can take from uh, some individual. We can limit how much uh, a corporation is able to 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 you know spend on a on a campaign um well we can't anymore after citizens united but outside spending like issue advocacy and that sort of thing that's un unrestricted and and until there is a change at the on the, you know of that supreme court precedent that was set in 1976 we're really powerless to to address that yeah but but look at look at how bernie did it right and you know how he fundraises and how he has an army of of uh, tens and hundreds of millions of people who are willing to fund this campaign, a, a truly people-powered campaign. And I actually it, it, that just you know, Barney came and supported my um, you know re-election at a time where I I felt very defeated. You know, early this year, you know, I just in terms of my political identity, I, I feel like oh, I don't really. You know, the left doesn't really want me either. Like, you know, like as an Asian American man, like I don't understand. Like, I I had this like existential like political crisis, and Bernie came in and it was like, he not only endorsed, but he sent out like a tweet and an email, and overnight, like I got like five thousand or six thousand donors in within hours of like one small email that can you support my friend Ron? And I'm like, and and that's when I realized this is it. Like, well, that's the counter. The, that's the counter that it. we have is yeah. just you know people power. But but ultimately, right. like the, this precedent yeah. is still damaging. And and like maybe in a race that gets national attention, you know, the, the it it works. But but like I would be willing to wager that like maybe seven out of ten times in, in in races that don't get national attention, the money does ultimately prove decisive, um, or at least more than half. Yeah, and I. Yeah, yeah, but if you, but also that's why I have a deep appreciation of of DSA in New York City and my local chapter in Queens and how they organize. They're able to show that they can beat big money 
by just organizing, especially the local races. You don't need that much money. And, and they won all the state races. Now they're doing city council races. And the next couple of years, if they can win all those seats little by little, it's your grassroots you know, transformation of municipal power. Because ultimately, what do we need to do as a city? We need to take over public utilities. We need to figure out how to create a public bank. Those, those That requires the city council Albany uh, state assembly members and senators, and that's what they're doing without big money. Um, so that's very exciting. Well, that that's very exciting for us too. <laughs> I mean, that's um, yeah, that's 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 really the way to do it. I think so. So, if you had any advice to people out there who are watching or who will watch this, um, who want to get involved or want to figure out how to uh, sort of take power back. Um, I mean, obviously that's a start. So, so I'll, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, I would ask people to go check out public power, uh, NYC. Uh, it is a, a plan to take over Con Edison and other public utilities, um, and how we can get there. Uh, and I would also encourage people to, you know, look at progressive organizing groups like the local DSA chapters in New York City, as well as the Working Families Party and, and ally groups like Make the Road and other groups that are in this fight to tax the rich. Um, the one good thing about um, the tax rich campaign is that, you know, they're the progressives and the lefts, uh, you know, and the liberal types there. It's a wide range. Um, but through it all, we all kind of came together um, and, and, and are supporting the similar uh, policies and tax bills. So it's good to see how uh, one by one, after many, many meetings and organizing, uh, we're there. Um, so I look forward to um, next year when we have a new body of lawmakers that are coming into Albany. Uh, for this year, um, are the chips are against us, especially when the governor keeps moving the goalpost because because originally he was saying, oh, yeah, we're going to text the rich. We have to do it. And now he's saying we're not going to get to it till March or April. He keeps moving it. Um, mm -hmm. So unless something drastic happens in the next couple of weeks, I don't see us getting into a significant number. Um, but we can help by just calling governor, uh, tweeting at him, doing whatever you can. Uh, to hold him accountable for the next couple of weeks. Somebody writes, I want Assemblyman Kim to fight Governor Cuomo for charity. <laughs> lots and lots of charity. <laughs> it's, you don't have to respond to that. We know you kick his ass. Um, <laughs> uh, but but uh, Assemblyman, I want to thank you for, for joining us and taking the time out of, your, of, of the fight to come on and, and uh, talk about this. And we hope to have you on again um, under better circumstances uh or or at least if things get more fucked up we'll we'll, we'll talk about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank you so much right. thank you thank you, thank you everybody Mark. for watching all right have a good night guys thank you audio editing by alex koch Original theme music by Direwolf. Published by Opt Out News. <laughs>